is Banksy, I think, who compared a tower. Was it in London? It was the um, the redesign of the World Trade Center towers. He right. created a fake critique of the buildings, um, a, a fake kind of front page of the New York Times, and he basically his insult to it was he said, um, "It's the moment that America lost its nerve. It's vanilla. It's like Canadian architecture, and oh. it's like." <laughs> and for, I mean, I'm, so I, I actually don't. I don't agree with him on that. I think we have a lot of really great, diverse Canadian voices. Hello, hello. Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to Bullseye Podcast. You're listening to episode number 88, and I'm your host, Rachel Anthony. You just heard a clip from our guests of the show today, Phil and Jesse, who are the owners and founders of Spectacle, an architectural firm in Calgary. How do we feel about the clip at the beginning? I listen to lots of podcasts and they have the little clip just to give you like a little teaser of what's to come. How do we feel? Let me know. Send me a message. If you like it, if you don't like it, we'll see how it goes. This seemed like a great clip to start that whole process for each episode. So we're going to stick with it now unless someone tells me otherwise. So today's episode is super interesting. I... I don't think we've ever really talked about architecture on this podcast, and so I'm excited to have two founders of an architectural firm. We talk about cool things like social infrastructure, we talk about what the Canadian architectural landscape looks like, and how Phil and Jesse are trying to evolve it with how they come at architecture and design. We talk about how they started their company, Spectacle, which is an internationally oriented architecture office working across the fields of architecture, urbanism, landscape, and object design. So they cover a lot. We talk about why having a diverse range of skills helps to maintain a generalist perspective and gain a number of different skills which broadens your horizon, you're able to work on different projects and have more variety in the ideas that you come up with. We talk about that. Um, I mentioned it in the podcast, but I just listened to the book, or listened to, I just read David Epstein's book, Range, which talks about the difference between doing it the Tiger Woods way, which was you're just going to play golf forever and that's all you're doing every day, or... A different approach which is covering a lot of different experiences different sports if that's the analogy that we're using rather than just sticking to one because it helps you in the long run and so I think Phil and Jesse are definitely along that path which I find very interesting and I'm definitely more of a generalist and so I like hearing someone else's perspective in a different industry and how they are using it to their advantage we talk about why industries need disruptors, how living in Europe influenced both of their perspectives when it comes to design and business, and they give their advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. So let's jump into it. It was a super interesting conversation, something a little different. Here is Jesse and Phil. Welcome back to Poolside Podcast. I'm sitting here today with Phil. Do you prefer Phil or Philip? Either one. With Phil and Jesse. So thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Do you want to start with, you can each introduce yourself and give us a fun fact just to get going. Sure. 
Well, maybe I'll start. Um, so I'm Philip Vandermeer. I'm an architect here in Calgary, um, and I practice in a firm called Spectacle. I also teach part-time at the University of Calgary, um, and uh, I've worked uh, here and in uh, Montreal, Barcelona, and Rotterdam before starting our own office. Um, and I thought, I didn't have a fun fact, but um, I'm reading Naomi Klein's uh, This Changes Everything right now, and I had a nice quote that I thought um, was super nice that I might uh, that I might bring up. So the quote goes, uh, we need to have the audacity to think differently and conceive of alternative futures. I love it. No one's ever given a quote, so that's great. That's an awesome quote. <laughs> uh, I'm Jesse Angelic. I'm also an architect here in Calgary and a partner at Spectacle. Uh, me and Philip both teach part-time as well at the university in the architecture department. Um, I don't know if it's a fun fact, but interesting to me, I think. I uh, heard something recently about uh, the importance of social infrastructure in our cities. So the idea of, uh, as opposed to hard infrastructure being things like roads and um, you know infrastructure for water, social infrastructure uh, basically takes care of us as sort of social beings. Um, and I heard through that conversation a fact about um, in places where uh, there have been natural disasters, people who are closer to their neighbors are more resilient. And so this idea of kind of taking care of each other um, actually is a really kind of important part of our cities. Cool, that is cool. And we're kind of gonna talk about Calgary a little bit later on, but how do you feel Calgary measures up for the social infrastructure? Well, I think, I mean, especially just going on that uh, idea of libraries, the, the new central library has really had a big impact on that. The feeling that there's actually kind of a hub where you can go and meet different people and, and bump into people you may not usually see in your day-to-day -day job. So I think, you know, something like that has been um, game-changing in terms of Calgary's landscape of social infrastructure. Um, but but absolutely, I mean, even if you look at the branch libraries, there's um, opportunities there for improvement as well. Well, and I think one time you were listening to a podcast, actually, that was talking about um, Calgary and how important our hospitality and kind of retail scene is. And part of that is because we have a kind of a, a, like a large city that's a sort of like a low density city that's spread out. And so um, a, a public space for us tends to be places like cafes and restaurants, places where you can kind of meet in the middle because to travel, let's say, always to someone else's house is maybe too far. But if you pick a medium kind of point, uh, you can meet there. So that's another um, space, I think, that functions as a, as a social hub, a uh, more distributed one, but a social hub in Calgary. Totally. One, especially like I live super far northwest, like in the suburbs and no one comes to my house. They're like, you have to go where? Like, should I pack <laughs> a lunch? I'm like, no, it's fine. But we always, especially like commons or the coffee shop just over here. And you always run into other people, too, that, you know, or like what are people like you said, are people working on other things? Like, what are they doing? And it is. It's very cool. I think. And Calgary feels like kind of like a small townish. like we're big and we're spread out. But I feel like if you go somewhere that's kind of the central hub, you tend to run into people or people that know of people and it's a cool community part yeah I mean even with digital media and social media we're, we're connected to so many more people but I mean we're working on a museum right now and part of our research about museums um, part of the uh, way that people look at planning museums is how people if you come in the door and you kind of see someone and then you go through the museum and you end up seeing them again there's something really lovely about that and and in spaces where that happens there's something really cool about finding people that you have commonalities with physically as well. So I think those social infrastructure hubs are kind of those places where, you know, you get to start to create communities of people. 
Right. Yeah, that's super interesting. I've never thought that hard about it, but it does make sense. Totally. That's awesome. Um, and so you're both architects. Did you grow up wanting to be an architect or designer? Do you want to give us both like a little bit of your journey to get here? Um, I, I didn't know that I wanted to be an architect per se, um, but I always liked to design things like build things out of Lego and, and I was really creative um, with like drafting and arts classes and that kind of thing in grade school. Um, so I kind of stumbled into architecture through studying various topics at the University of Calgary. Um, but once I uh, found myself in architecture, I knew that it was a, a really great fit, that it matched this kind of like, you know, it, um, something that deals with art and like, um, you know, thinking about kind of like larger ideas and larger kind of like visionary kind of plans for the future. Uh, but it, it's there's also like a like, um, uh, you know, there's there's a problem solving kind of like a professional aspect to it as well, which is like really grounded and, and, and you know, has a kind of a deep history. And for me, I think it's a really kind of great sweet spot. Cool. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't grow up knowing I wanted to be an architect. I, uh, I was lucky to have parents who were both teachers and really kind of involved in uh, my life and um, suggested that because I was strong in math and because I was strong in art, <coughs> excuse me, that architecture may have been something that could be interesting for me. Um, and that kind of came around high school. So at around high school, I started taking drafting courses in high school and um, art classes and kind of starting th to think about that. Uh, and as I learned more about it, I got more interested in it. But I think I also didn't really know what it was. I kind of launched into it thinking that it might have matched my interests. And it's way surpassed what I ever kind of thought it could be. And, and like Phil said, involves so many other parts of our culture and, and thinking about the way cities work. And the scope has, has gone beyond what I originally ever thought. Um, and, you know, people are always saying to me, oh, you're an architect, you must be good in math. I, I don't really use math very often. So it's sort of funny that like these two very specific collisions of art and math were the sort of jumping off point for me. But um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I loved art growing up um, and I was involved in uh, artistic endeavors. But um, for me, it was definitely kind of high school when I started thinking about it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I feel like no one, if someone says you're an architect, I feel like we all have very just basic like oh you must design buildings or something you know and so yeah. like there's way more that you get to do than just design a building which is awesome and so you did you both go to Europe to work for a bit um together and why did you decide to go to Europe do you want to just walk us through kind of what you did there why did you go there and why you came back well um Europe has Europe is a, obviously has a, a kind of a, a, a deeper let's say architectural history than than Canada, at least in our in the way that we think about architecture like city making urbanism, um, and so it's kind of a great place with the you know with the Western tradition to to learn about you know making public space making institutional buildings and that kind of thing, um, and Rotterdam specifically um, is the is the location of OMA which is a kind of famous international office and has a lot of spin-off offices there as well so we both worked for smaller spin-off offices from that from that firm um, so that was really kind of a, um, um, a great experience and the other thing is that um, 
where Europe differs a little bit from North America is that here we award projects based on something like experience or, you know, for example, if you uh, are looking toward an architect with a hospital, you might say, well, what are the five hospitals you've done in the last five years or something like that? Um, uh, which is important also, um, but Europe differs slightly in that what they'll do is they'll put out a design competition and architects will enter that competition, sometimes anonymously or sometimes they'll, you know, who they are, their identity will be known through the process. Um, but what it means is that the project is awarded to the best idea, to the best design for the project. Um, and that raises the level of quality from a design perspective. So um, it's not necessarily about just making a functional building, a building that works, a building that doesn't leak. You know, those things are important also, um, but maybe it starts to reach towards something a little bit more. Um, and so that's something that we found quite inspiring uh, about, about going there and something that we've, you know, tried to, tried to uh, build on as well since coming back. I think in terms of why we came back, Rotterdam is an amazing place to kind of study and learn. There were events every night around architecture. You could go to an exhibition, a film. Um, you'd go out to have a bite to eat in a restaurant. And if you're speaking English, people weren't asking, well, what do you do? It was like, which architecture firm do you work for? Like, there's just so many architects. And so it was fun to be a part of that energy and part of that feeling of kind of a mass of people all interested in the same thing. Um, but I think like often when people travel, you start to think about the opportunities back home. And that was very much, I think, our experience. We also, I think, also knew at some point we wanted to start our own firm. And, um, you know, doing that in our hometown made a lot of sense. We also, like I mentioned, both teach and have been interested in teaching. And so that was something uh, that kind of drew us back to Calgary as well, is, is the opportunity to be a part of the university. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think living in a different place highlights um, the work to do back home and so we kind of felt like we wanted to contribute somehow back here and kind of apply what we had learned and continue our practice in a place where we felt like we had a kind of a, a, a home and a community of support so that was really what sort of drew us back <coughs> but moving back also you know we don't think about being in calgary as a kind of a really localized practice necessarily like we're in calgary our family's here we practice here that kind of thing um but we're also very interested in thinking globally and being involved globally. So we've participated in international competitions and, you know, sometimes we get, we get um, uh, commissioned by people internationally as well. And so um, for us, you know, we like the idea that um, Calgary can have, you know, architects in Calgary and other, you know, other uh, professions, other specialties in Calgary can have an international voice. We can participate in a larger discussion. You know, we can do work and kind of project the kind of great um, ideas that we have here uh, throughout the world. Right. Yeah. Well, because everything's digital now, so there's no, there's no reason that you have to stay really in Calgary. Yeah. Um, and what are some of the like biggest differences you saw in Europe that you brought to Calgary? Well, the process that we worked on uh, with those firms, some, some people call it um, like brute force. So um, it, it's actually a rendering term. It comes from like uh, computer rendering where the computer like tests like every single pixel. It's like a really, really 
you know, some, somewhat wasteful and inefficient process. What it means is that you're spending huge amounts of effort testing the possibilities for the project. Um, it's a very iterative process where, for example, instead of making like three or four options, we may might make 100 or 200 options. And we like to kind of like exhaustively test what the possibilities for a project could be. Um, I think that that's, that's, uh, that's one part of it. Also, the just the work ethic. We found when we were there that, you know, people were really kind of, um, uh, as the as the project load kind of like ebbed and flowed, people would really kind of like pitch into like a really intense kind of work ethic, um, which we think is is great. And that doesn't you know a lot of firms have that here as well, um, but that's something that we really we really built and learned from working with the teams that we participated with in Europe. I think the other thing we learned in terms of practicing there was the value of collaboration and the kind of intensity of collaboration there. Um, so it wasn't uncommon. I worked for a firm that was about 20 people or so, and we would go for projects, huge projects, and we would combine or collaborate between three similarly sized firms, all maybe 20 people or something like that. And um, it meant that we had the kind of manpower or the, pa the human resources of a large corporate firm. And, and like Phil said, because it was often competition-based, you know, the best idea or the best design wins, um, there was less sort of preference, I guess, given to larger corporate firms that had a portfolio of experience. And so we, you know, we worked on the Amsterdam Central train stations, which was a, which was a huge project. And so this idea that, like, um, it doesn't just have to be big corporations and small boutique firms, but that there is a gray space in between for firms to participate. Um, and so I think that's something we've, we've been trying to work into the way we practice here too, is just seeing that, you know, every firm has different specialties and how can we kind of curate or put together teams for projects based on the project need rather than kind of having one um, business model that we sort of apply to every project. So I think that was also, part, you know, something we, we brought back for sure. And what's the reaction been with other firms? Like, have you collaborated with other firms or how do other people feel about that? It's worked really well. So um, we've partnered with a few firms and um, uh, I mean, sometimes it has to do with um, different areas of expertise. So they might bring something, for example, the museum that Jesse mentioned, we're partnered with a kind of like an internationally renowned uh, museum um, planning firm in Toronto um, for that project. Um, sometimes it has to do with a firm that brings um, experience and resources, a deeper team that can kind of backstop our office. So like if a client is, you know, if we think that a client might be worried about the fact that, you know, we're, we're an emerging office and, you know, can, you know, will we, will we have the kind of staying power or like the resources to do a really great job, then, you know, that's a great kind of um, partnership as well. Um, and, but, but we always um, look to uh, work with people who are kind of like like-minded who have a kind of a really um, um, a high bar in terms of design quality um, and people with whom we have a kind of a similar approach so we can talk about architecture and we can talk about how to improve the projects um, in a way that's really kind of sympathetic and and that that um, brings synergy I guess to the process that's awesome and then the project probably turns out better than it would have if you just did it by yourself and you have more minds the more perspectives is always better mm -hmm. and more complexity too so like you know sometimes 
you can create a scheme you think is like really perfect you know you've knocked all the rough edges off of it you've resolved it really well but then it can maybe become a little bit boring or a little bit too simple and so like when you have different perspectives in the room whether that's within a firm or between different firms um, you know bringing kind of almost like colliding or contradictory elements or or you know uh, uses can bring a kind of a life to the project um, and so yeah we found that to be uh, a really great way to to actually build the complexity and interest of the projects right yeah that's awesome and so let's talk about spectacle so when in all of this did you decide to start the company and why did you decide to start a company as opposed to just coming back and working for a different firm um, well, Phil actually interviewed with, what was it, five or ten different firms across Canada uh, when we were first thinking about coming back to Canada. And at that point, we were a bit undecided. We weren't sure whether we were going to make the leap, start our own firm, or whether we would kind of do one more stint uh, working somewhere else. And, and so we kind of went back and forth and um, decided to, you know, we wanted to do it. We knew at some point, and we were like, let's just do it sooner rather than later. We didn't have a project to start, and so we were starting um, without, you know, something specific and like discrete to work on. But in some ways, that was a really great opportunity for us because it gave us basically the space to find something that we were excited about working on and something we wanted to kind of invest our efforts in. And so um, the first project we did uh, was a study for Downtown Medicine Hat, which is my hometown. Um, which has a really beautiful historic fabric, fabric not unlike Inglewood. It sort of has that feeling. Um, but unlike Inglewood, has not sort of been claimed. It's still quite desolate, at that time in 2013, was still quite desolate and a lot of empty buildings um, and a lot of empty spaces. And so we, we uh, through some funding, were able to study a kind of short-term um, idea for how we could revitalize downtown Medicine Hat. We partnered with a local photographer who had single-handedly documented almost every single building downtown. He had gone and gotten keys from real estate agents and so he had this amazing library of photographs of, of existing buildings. Um, so with him we held an exhibition where we paired kind of our vision for what the downtown could look like with his celebration of the existing historic fabric. Um, and the project started to kind of take on its own life and spurred on, to, you know, into other other projects as well. But that was kind of how we started. That was the, the kickstart to our firm. And did you reach out to them or how did, because I know lots of people like start business and same thing, like don't necessarily have clients. And mm -hmm. so did you reach out to them or how, I guess if you're from there, you might have known somebody. Yeah, I mean, I think that that process, that, that, that approach that Jesse talked about, it's called a, like a self-initiated project, started after the 2008 financial crisis with firms around the world. So essentially, as, as projects kind of went offline, as people were laid off, um, they were kind of looking for uh, opportunities to do something. Um, and sometimes that meant, well, I have, I've got time, you know, um, designing stuff doesn't really take resources, um, you know, and, and, and although you might prefer to be employed, you know, you're finding yourself in that situation. That wasn't our case, but I think that happened kind of worldwide uh, uh, um, to a lot of people. And so then this idea of a self-initiated project had a couple of possibilities. The first thing was you could study a topic or a project that was interesting to you and not something that a, uh, a client had brought to you. Um, 
which is which is another kind of great way to deliver a project. But when you have a, the, the chance to imagine something, it's totally open ended. For example, you see a, an empty corner in the city that you think, oh, I think that this, you know, a, I think that this really great project could go there, a library or a bus station or, you know, a mixed use building or whatever. Um, or, or, or you see some kind of topic like maybe you want to address, you know, homelessness or something like that through some sort of building design. Um, and so you can create something out of nothing in a way. Maybe you're searching for p partners or maybe you try and find who, this own, who owns the site and you try to approach them and say, hey, I've got this idea. You know, would you be willing to fund a study to kind of explore what's possible? And then maybe, you know, that, that study brings investors on board and et cetera. It can spin off to something greater. So one of the Medicine Hat sites, for example, had a few lives. We studied a kind of a, a mixed-use building on a site right across from City Hall. And then in a second phase, um, the city actually commissioned a design competition on that site, um, uh, which we were awarded a prize for once we were kind of made it to the shortlist. Um, and then in a third phase, which we were also commissioned for, the city decided, okay, economically it's not the right moment for us to build a building here, but can we take this empty parking lot space and turn it into a mixed-use space? So it's parking during you know, weekdays, evenings and weekends. It becomes a plaza which could be used for markets and et cetera. So we studied what that possibility might be as well. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a, an exciting new way of, of thinking about making projects. Because as you say, when you start, you know, you don't have clients on board. Um, and But you're also using that time to talk about what is important to you as a firm. Like, you know, we, we, we talked about what are the things that matter to us. Um, it gave us a chance to set up our office, to set up, you know, the, the way that we deliver a project and et cetera, which is, a, which is something that takes years to do and is kind of a, an ongoing process. Um, but we could keep those kinds of activities going at the same time as we were exploring projects. We were also incorporating our office and all the kind of, you know, bureaucratic stuff to start a firm. Right, yeah, and I guess then you're demonstrating because you chose a project, it's like the best of your best work because you came in first. And like you said, it wasn't like a project that was given to you, you chose and so you can show everything that you have to offer at that moment, which is great. And the processes and stuff, I feel like lots of people, if they go in it from the other way, they get the clients and they get the project and then they're like, oh, maybe we should set up the processes. Maybe we should, then you get, there's, then it's very chaotic, I feel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which is, that's awesome. And so where did the name come from? What is Skeptical Me? Is there, an, is there a story there's behind the name? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a few stories. So uh, one of them might be that there was a book published in Canada that was called Substance Over Spectacle. And it talked about how Canadian architecture was really meaningful and, you know, it has, um, uh, it, 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 it contributes more than something that's just about appearance or looks or something like that. And um, there's a lot of great architects in that book, um, people who are mentors and, and people who we really look up to. Um, but, the, but the title itself, we thought, we kind of questioned, we said, well, should we be like, you know, should we uh, be so um, subtle as Canadians or so apologetic or so uh, humble and quiet? Uh, why don't we create something that's more celebratory and uh, visionary and something that makes a splash and is maybe provocative, something that actually kind of maybe makes some people angry and provokes discussion and debate? I think that's something that we need to do through art and architecture as well. Um, and so that was part of it. Um, another one might be that um, Guy de Boer wrote a book called Substance. Uh, 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 Society of the Spectacle. Right, thank you, I'm mixing up the books. Uh, Society of the Spectacle, uh, which talks about the fact that 
um, in a kind of a contemporary uh, capitalistic society, uh, everything becomes about kind of like an image, like creating an image of something. And so we thought that we could both uh, embody that through our work as, al as well as also kind of question it. So like maybe we start to ask, well, what is actually meaningful to us as a society? What are the things that we should really be addressing? Um, and so our, uh, we, we try to kind of play in that, in that zone. Um, uh, and some you know projects may take different voices as well when we're exploring the different kind of dimensions of those topics. We're, we're proud to be Canadian architects, but Canadian architecture hasn't always been something that is um, revered on the international stage. And not that it's not that it's bad, just that it hasn't really had the presence. And there's Banksy, I think, who compared a tower. Was it in London? It was the um, the redesign of the World Trade Center towers. He right. created a fake critique of the buildings, um, a, a fake kind of front page of the New York Times. And he basically, his insult to it was he said, um, it's the moment that America lost its nerve, it's vanilla, it's like Canadian architecture. Oh. And it's like, <laughs> and for, I mean, I'm, so I, I actually don't, I don't agree with him on that. I think we have a lot of really great diverse Canadian voices and, and a lot of really kind of spectacular, uh, a spectacular architectural history, which goes uh, really deeply th into history uh, with, um, with indigenous forms of architecture from all across the country. Uh, um, but I guess our point of view was um, saying, well, you know, maybe we don't know, maybe people aren't aware of that on a world stage. People aren't aware of the ideas that we have. So that might include like promoting and publishing you know, um, um, articles or books on the history of architecture, but also creating architecture that really kind of tries to, again, like internationally, um, create a little bit more of a splash and maybe, uh, uh, you know, not worry so much about being kind of quiet and humble. Right, be less less Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, change, change the narrative around what's happening with the Canadian architecture. And did you, when you started the business, did you have any business background or how did you from a business perspective how did you grow the company and start the company no <laughs> we didn't have any business background um, we and I think that's the case for a lot of architects it, you know it's the opposite of sort of going to business school which is like then what do you apply that business to what's the passion so we come at it from the opposite perspective which is like we clearly have the passion um, and and so all of the business side of it is learned as you go you know we make a lot make a lot of mistakes along the way but um, but basically kind of on an as-needed basis we sort of learned what we needed to to learn by bringing in people or finding people who could sort of help us fill in the gaps um, and so I mean something I think we still are learning and struggling with uh, you know but finding the right balance between you know letting other people other experts do the thing they're good at so that we can focus on what we're good at balancing that with as a small business, you know, trying to keep your costs low, what is worth us doing and taking on ourselves. So I think that's something we constantly uh, continue to struggle with, but we're learning as we go. Well, and it's something we talk about. It's like depending because, you know, 
when projects ebb and flow, as I said, sometimes your money is expensive and sometimes your time is expensive. So we're like we're constantly kind of adjusting that as we go as well. Um, but we've had a lot of really great formal and informal mentors, like people we've reached out to, firms that we appreciate, that we admire, where we would just ask them, you know, how did you do this? How did you how did you set this up? Like what you know, what did you um, what kind of equipment did you use for this? So we kind of gain a little bit of information by reaching out to people. Um, and we've had um, really great mentors as well who will take the time to answer a question when we're not sure how to approach a certain thing. So we're like, you know, as an employee with an architecture firm, we never dealt with this kind of aspect of, of the business. So, you know, what would you do in this situation? And that's been really, really invaluable for us. And what would you say is the like best advice you've been given throughout the years for running a business? Not necessarily even just architecture business, but just business in general. Um, I would say one of the one of the best things uh, that we learned was always charge a retainer, for example, with our clients. So we always we always ask for a retainer up front, which means number one, like, um, do you have the resources to do this project? Are you serious about you know the quality of the work and the effort that we're putting towards the project? Um, and and that's a really great way to kind of like um, create a to, to to create the relationship up front. Um, and it means and a lot of a lot of professionals are often. Um, chasing what's called accounts receivable so you're always kind of like asking for payment l after the fact um, with a retainer up front you can always take from that if you know if there's an outstanding bill or something like that and then you can always just kind of stop work when you're you, you know if, if, if you're waiting so th that's a bit more of a on the kind of like boring side of business um, but that was a piece of advice which has really worked out well for us um, and what it means is that we can uh, by it, it, those kinds of little details and there's many of them there's hundreds of them uh, but those little details are the things that mean that uh, we're spending our time innovating and thinking about great ideas things that we're passionate about rather than worrying about or managing uh, like some inefficiencies in the business which create stresses for us so like you know we don't have financial stresses in an office where we're in a project rather where we're you know trying to kind of like catch up on something or or you know we're we're we're, we're distracted by some other kind of like smaller issue uh, but rather we're able to really focus each and every time on spending you know huge amounts of effort on coming up with new ideas creating something unique and special and i feel like that's transferable to any business to whatever your industry is or whatever you're doing to spend more time on what you're actually in the business of as opposed mm -hmm. to the little things that take up they can take up a lot of time if you get like in the weeds i guess and being able to be aware of that and making the choice to solve the little problems but you can focus on the they can take up your entire day yeah, yeah. every day totally absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. yeah and when, and when you look at some people throughout history like it, we love to read uh, biographies for example and if you read about people who have been successful in what they do um, often they have these kinds of th this kind of business sense so for example Andy Warhol was brilliant from a business perspective from a perspective of promoting himself um, also you know he said he always got paid for everything that he did so like you know, maybe one of the most or the most influential architects of the kind of like the, the pop art, like kind of like mid-century era uh, was actually a savvy uh, business person, mm. um, you know, and he started off drawing advertisements for shoe for shoe companies. So like he was doing he, w he was actually really a commercial artist to start. So um, it's interesting how those things really need to go hand in hand. There needs to be a real synergy between creativity and, and, and like business sense, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's hard for some people, especially, like you guys said, if you ha you have the passion but you need the business, I think people get lost on 
one or the other and their business yeah. fails because they're too creative or they get stuck in the business and then they lose their like creative side of it and then getting paid for everything and like having the retainer so at least you're, it's worth your time and valuing your time because I as a small business and I like I don't do I do social media so different businesses but you end up you could do a lot for free and being like oh like I promise like I'll show you that I can do this and then you can pay me later mm-hmm. and then like why would they pay you later <laughs> is right. really the lesson learned right I uh, saw a really great uh, flow chart one time that had like it's like the, the question at the top was should you work for free and then it went through and it was a, it was an artist who created I think a graphic designer maybe and graphic designers are the you know are, the, are, are a profession where you kind of say well you know I just need this logo and then you know maybe on like you know I, I'll have money and I'll get you to do my whole marketing package but there's always this kind of like promo work that you need to kind of get into the into the room let's say um, and it's if you get a chance to search it it's a really fun one it's you know it's sort of like it, it, it traces through this kind of like yes no matrix um, and then in the end it's like usually no except for there's like one case it's like you know is it <laughs> is it like you know are you helping you know like starving children or you know, it's like right. it's like very a very specific kind of set of criteria under which you'll work for free um, I'll yeah. have to look that up <laughs> I love it <laughs> um, and what has it been like working together and starting a business together I feel like people are always interested in relationship dynamics when a business is brought in as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess um, being that we're married as well, uh, at the time we weren't, but but that we have a romantic relationship as well as a business relationship, it means that I feel like in a lot of ways it made it easier because we have such a close working relationship to begin with. And so the kind of we're on the same page, let's say from day one, rather than kind of having to negotiate know what's the right you know or not even what's the right direction but like what are your base values and and whether those are aligned like that was never um, a question I don't think for us and so um, so in that way it it has made it easy I think also because we complement each other really well it works well Um, I tend to really love to get into the kind of daily grind like I just love that I love doing the tasks I love um, you know procuring projects and and managing projects and and Phil's very much kind of thinking about the vision and so we um we we complement each other really well um people are always like how do you separate work and home and for us we've never been too concerned with that because you know for an example um when we go traveling we spend most of the time traveling sort of finding buildings and sort of seeking out locations spaces to check out and that's sort of how we organize and and um that's how we that's how we travel and so we've never really felt like we need to draw that line super clearly we're we're we're, we love our work so we don't mind talking about it at home and sometimes at work we talk about home and and i guess that blurring is um i think really productive and healthy actually yeah i think in creative professions um, any creative industries it's hard to kind of like end the moment when you're creative and when you're thinking about something. So that means that like, you know, we can have fun and talk about things at the office that might not be always about the projects we're working on or something like that. So we can, we can hang out, we get to hang out all day at the office, which is great. Um, Something that we never liked before when we were working as employees was like splitting off for the day, walking to work and getting to the corner where you had to go in different directions. We're like, ah man, this part sucks. and it was always fun when we met up at the end of the day. We don't have to do that anymore, so we get to hang out all day. Um, but it also means that, like, when we have ideas, it, you know, in the middle of an evening or something like that, we can kind of just bring it up and chat about it. So um, I think those things, like, just kind of like all ebbing and or all kind of blending together, is um, is like it is 
the part of our life that we love the most actually like we all we constantly kick ourselves and say you know this is a this is great like that we get to do this we have so much fun we're very lucky and now that we have a we have a two-year-old <laughs> uh you know i think we're finding there needs to be some sort of boundaries law uh you know drawn because for example we tell him that we we are in architecture and so now i think he associates it associates us leaving the house with architecture so we're like oh he's gonna have a terrible association with this word you know <laughs> but he loves to read architecture magazines it's like one of his favorite uh bed <laughs> bedtime stories <laughs> looking at like pointing out stairs and skylights and stuff so uh we'll see as as we kind of <laughs> as he grows up whether we'll have to draw a few more boundaries right but i guess that's fun because then even if you do travel you can take him to the buildings yeah. and if he finds it interesting then like why not? I yeah. guess. Well, they get to build towers at home on the weekend. Right. Blocks. So. Yeah, he loves construction machines. So yeah. if we took him to a building site, he would just think we're the coolest people ever. For sure. Oh yeah, whenever we go to site, we're like, oh, Miles would be so proud. Of that right now. <laughs> That's so funny. That's awesome. Um, and what advice would you give? You've mentioned a little bit to aspiring entrepreneurs that want to start a business. Um, from a business perspective, also going into business with a partner, just general advice on your whole situation. <laughs> um, well, I think one thing would be that I think you should approach business not from just a perspective of like a, like a spreadsheet or a, like a profit-driven enterprise. Uh, one of the most abstract things about business, I think, is that people learn how to like build something you know, financially, something that makes a return on investment and that kind of thing. But really successful businesses have ideas at the at the basis of them, right? So, like if you think about Tesla, for example, and um, you know trying to reinvent mobility, you know reinventing the way that the car works in terms of like maybe focusing more on software than hardware and on electrifying vehicles and etc. You know that's a kind of a and 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 travel, you know, like um, exploration um, in space. I think that that kind of vision allows uh, you know people to kind of like. Uh, like rally around something you know not to speak of all the issues around tesla as well of course but um, um i think so i think you should first have a passion like what's the what, what's the thing that you want to create what, do, what is it that you why do you want to create a business and that should be the heart of it because it's a lot of work it takes a long time to get there and you go through kind of like difficult times as well as successes and so like in those difficult times you, you want something that's going to be that thing that will kind of um, pull you um through that um, in terms of working together, I mean, like Jesse said, we tend to have personalities that mesh really well together. Um, and so we complement each other. Uh, but we've talked with a lot of people who, who don't work together, but who say, you know, I could never work with my partner. Um, and so I think you have to kind of be realistic about whether that, that can, whether there's a kind of a, like, a, whether you can actually spend day in and day out with each other and not not get sick of each other or you know not have let's say competing kind of like egos or or approaches or something like um if that's the case then you know maybe that doesn't that doesn't make sense yeah i mean i think we we covered some of it with um seeking out experts and and being kind of careful with your time um i think the other part is like the value of productive conflict and just um, talking to people and almost we come from a culture with architecture school of critique where we're used to kind of standing up in front of our work and kind of being well traditionally torn apart right like you know you're you're getting blasted from every direction um and and but the value of that is that it makes the work stronger and it makes the ideas better 
And so, you know, there are perhaps lots of different ways to do that in, in more um, uh, respectful ways. But that idea of almost like seeking out people who have different opinions about things to make your idea stronger and richer. And so even when it comes to finding those experts, um, you of course want people who are aligned with your values, but also people who have different perspectives and can bring new ideas or can make your ideas stronger by having those sort of productive discussions that aren't always necessarily simple and kind of easy to, to, to jump off of, but that allow you to kind of get deeper into ideas and make them stronger. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like that's what a lot of people avoid because nobody wants to be told that like their work isn't great or what yeah. they're doing isn't great. So you yeah. have to get outside your comfort zone a little bit for that. Yeah. And build resilience. I think the more that you have to kind of defend your work and um, yeah, defend it, it, it also helps you figure out what's important to you and helps you kind of chart a path. Definitely. And throughout the conversation, you talk about lots of different aspects of architecture. And like you said, you do a lot of like urbanism and design and stuff. So, and on your website, you say that you are generalist, which I just read um, David Epstein's range book. I don't know if you've heard of it, but he talks about like, not the Tiger Woods, like 10,000 hours, but more do everything. And that's how you become better at like what you're actually mm -hmm. doing, which reminded me when I was reading your website, I was like, oh, I wonder if they've read the book because it reminds me of you guys. And so how do you, besides what you've said about travel, how do you, manage to stay with such a wide scope of experience and skills and projects without because I feel like when you get a design I feel like you end up with the same type of projects or that's what like the experience people know you for it so how mm -hmm. do you maintain a wide variety mm -hmm. well I think part of it is oh, I haven't read that book actually but thank you I want to uh, now I want to look it up and read it it's um, a good one um, I think uh, uh, sorry now I've blanked out for a second with my expert <laughs> the generalist being a generalist um, I can't yeah, okay okay uh, <laughs> jump in Tay, Tay, you're in. I, I'm it uh, I mean I think our world is trending towards specialization and we can see it even arch in architecture right there are building envelope specialists there are and like you say often program defines what architects do and by program we mean like the type of building so you're building or you're an architect that's, that does hospitals you're an architect that does education buildings and we have always very consciously tried to avoid that because and Phil kind of alluded it to it earlier but the way procurement often works here it is based on you doing five projects of the same type in the last five years and we kind of actively fight against that because we feel like that doesn't support innovation that supports relying on a model that gets repeated and and that's a model we're kind of uninterested in. And so so we seek out being generalists um, in an increasingly specialized world, which is challenging, but also I think really important because the more things get specialized, the less there are people kind of looking at the ties between things and, and the gaps uh, grow bigger. And so, um, you know, I, I love being able to sort of jump from one scale to another. I mean, we've designed everything from jewelry up to like you mentioned like ur like urban master plans and you know we come at it from the position that it makes our work stronger because we're not relying on those models and in fact in Holland sometimes there were um, 
you know, requests for architects who had never worked on a certain building type because the clients knew that in asking for people who hadn't done it before, there would be a huge amount of research. They'd really kind of delve into the topic and not just kind of rely on tradition. Yeah, I mean, we're, I think we're quite fortunate that we worked for several years for other offices and really great offices here as well as um, internationally and across Canada. Um, and that meant that we got to build a bit of a, um, a portfolio of experience that was also broad. You know, we worked in small and large offices, we worked in different places and we worked for all, we worked on all sorts of different project types. So our portfolio that we can draw from of previous experience is broad, which helps a lot, I think. Um, but yeah, I think it's really, I, I think it's important to maintain a certain amount of naivety, I guess, when we when, when you approach uh, projects, and that's really how you become a disruptor. If you don't know, you know, the mistakes that you're going to make, if you don't know how difficult it is to change an existing model, uh, you know, you'll you'll um, you'll 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 be able to kind of like make some waves that way. So, um, yeah, I think that I think that's an important way to approach design. Definitely. And we touched upon this at the beginning, like I said, just because you are in Calgary and most people listening to this are in Calgary and you've worked in other cities, you've done lots of projects. Uh, what do you love most about Calgary and how would you change it either in a social infrastructure way or just the urban plan in general? I think uh, like I would say that I think the best part about Calgary is the people. Uh, we have a really great city, a young city, an entrepreneurial kind of pioneering city. Um, with a great kind of like long indi indigenous history as well. Um, and I think that um, that Cal Calgary has this kind of a, there's something special about being in a city like Calgary, meeting people on the street. It's a very friendly city. It's a very helpful city. It's a very polite city. And so it's a, it, it, it just, it has a good feeling. I mean, I think the thing that keeps drawing us back is that it feels like home. Um, uh, and, and I don't know if that's only because we're here, uh, because we're from here, uh, but I think a lot of people who have moved here feel the same way somehow that there's something special about Calgary. Um, one of the uh, difficult things I think about Calgary is how is how large it is, how 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 extended it is, um, and you know one of the things that I think af affects us every day is um, the amount that we spread our tax base, the amount that we spend on, for example, you know extensive infrastructures, things like you know uh, clean water, um, you know dealing with sewage, electricity, highways and bridges and that kind of thing. Um, when we spend that on a really large area, what it means is that in any given spot of the city, we can only build to a certain level of quality. So like some of our research on the 2013 floods, for example, kind of pointed out that um, part of the, the issue that caused those floods is that our tax base is spread far enough that we couldn't build the resilient river edges that we needed to protect, you know, budget reasons mean that we can't kind of spend money where we really kind of need to or want to. Um, and so I think that if we can find a way, and I think the city of Calgary is really putting a focus on infill development and densification. There was the Main Streets program, which I think might be on, on ice now at the moment because of the economy. Um, but if we can focus on building spaces in the city where we have like mixed use areas where you can a complete city where you could shop and work and live and you know get the city services that you need um, and we could build those spaces at a high level of quality we can create places that we really love to spend time in um, and I think that's something that's missing if you think about Calgary you think about public space where would you go 
to be in a place outdoors with other people that you really, really love. That's not just because of the programming that makes it great, but the space that makes it great. There's not so many of them. So um, I think we can do a better job of creating more of those kinds of places. Yeah, and I think a lot of that comes down to choice too. Like right now, you know, there's sort of the two models. You live in the inner city in a condo or you move to the suburbs in a house. And I think that, you know, related to density is that we just need more options for people. There, you know, we live in Beltline um, and we have been able to find a place that's kind of suitable for a young family, but there's, you know, you could probably count them on like two hands how many there are. And so, you know, it's, I think it's very much about the future of Calgary needs to think about that, providing different options for people, not just saying, you know, we're going to densify everything and everyone's going to live in condos. Like, that doesn't work for everyone. But but finding uh, a place where people actually feel like they have real options, you know, that are financially equivalent and there's, qu- you know, quality options um, that are durable and thinking about the long term rather than just as a, you know, you're, you're dwelling as a sort of financial investment in vehicle. Um, I think in terms of the another thing I love about Calgary, I, I, I totally have, agree with Phil about the people and the kind of opportunity, but just like the feeling of being sort of surrounded and embedded in like a natural context. And and we've had so many conversations about like the view of the mountains. Everyone loves the view of the mountains. And it's actually something I've never really understood. Why do you want to just look at the mountains? I come from Medicine Hat, so I didn't grow up with that. But there is something really lovely about being able to access hike you know in Bright Creek that's a 45 minute drive away or you know feeling like the the downside of being embedded in nature on all sides is that we can sprawl on all sides but there's also something I think really humbling about being in a place that um, feels very you know just beautiful and and is stunning just from a kind of natural setting perspective yeah, no, I mean, I'm from Calgary too, so I am biased as well, and I love it. So, but I love the mountains. There's, I live in the Northwest, so I drive, but down yeah. like Stony Trail, and you get like the, yeah, the mountains. And every time I drive, I'm like, oh yeah, this yeah. is where we live, and it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Which is good. And then a couple more questions. You mentioned a couple books and podcasts. What would you recommend to listeners? They can be architect specific or just in general. Um, I listened to a podcast, a design podcast called 99% Invisible, um, which I really like. It kind of, it's, it's sort of random topics about design. Um, uh, there's so many books. Well, <laughs> it's may, hard uh, to know where to start. I might, I might recommend um, City Lab, which is a website that's put, uh, or that's supported by um, the Atlantic Monthly. Um, and, uh, you know, just from the not from a specialist point of view but just for people who are kind of like enthusiasts or interested in city making um, city lab tends to look at current events through the lens of the city so like how might you know social inequality be reflected in you know the way that we we design the city and the way we design neighborhoods and etc but you know that topic but any any kind of topics are in there so it's it's a really great um, a, a, a great read and I would read that along with other newspapers or current events but i think it's a it's a that's a really great uh, website as well cool and where can people find and connect with you online www.spectacle-bureau.com do you have instagram your instagram yes we have instagram i think it's spectacle underscore bureau <laughs> and we have we're on twitter and facebook cool
I'll link them below. Well, I'll double check your handle <laughs> and then link it below. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on here. It was definitely a different conversation than I've normally had. So it's really good to have you guys on here. Great. Thanks, thanks so us. much.